Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers. With the Think Again podcast, we're in bold and uncharted territory. Short clips from our interview archives launch spontaneous discussions on every imaginable subject. My guests have no idea what to expect, and neither do I. My guest today is the hugely influential Harvard psychologist Howard Gardner. If you're remotely interested in the human mind, you've heard of his theory of multiple intelligences, which views intelligence not as a single general ability, think IQ, but as a series of different abilities, including musical rhythmic, visual spatial, and many more. Howard is the hero of those of us like me who are reasonably creative and clever with words, but horrible at math. Welcome to Think Again, Howard. Thank you. Your first book on multiple intelligences came out about 30 years ago, right? And since then, you've been, over the past few years, working with The Good Project, which, as I understand it, is a kind of research center into what constitutes goodness in different areas of human endeavor. Is that what it means to do good work, to be a good citizen, to be a good person? Not the same, but all important. How do you go about defining those things? How do you even begin? I'm an empirical researcher, which means that, of course, I have my own ideas, but I'm trying to find out how people think about things. So when we began the Good Project, we started with focusing in the area of work. And my close collaborators, Mike Csikszentmihalyi and Bill Damon and I, developed an interview protocol. And we interviewed over 1,200 people in nine different professions. And we've tried to find what each of those persons thought it went to be a good worker. This was a 10-year project, and in the end, we came up with an answer which can be summarized quite succinctly. Good work has three properties. Good work is technically excellent. The person knows what he or she is doing. It's personally engaging. The person wants to do the work. They look forward to going to work. They don't dread time at the workplace. And it's carried out in an ethical way. So if you're a teacher, we'll use the teacher as an example, you don't get to be a good worker on our calculus unless you know your stuff, you're excellent, you care about the students and about the teaching environment, and when difficult issues arise, I mean, what do you do with a child that cheats? What do you do with somebody who writes about something in the newspaper which is going to get the school in trouble? Those are complicated ethical issues. Uh, How do you deal with those things? To what extent do those three components go together? Well, they need to go together if you're going to get a a star from me, but of course they don't. If they did, then we would just have a single aspect of good. But it's exactly the contrary. There are many people who know their stuff but who don't care. There are people who care a lot but don't know their stuff. And there are many people who don't even think they have their ethical issues arise (laughs) because they're so blind to it. So they don't go together. That's where the social science is important. In fact, the average person would think there's just good and bad in general. And what we're arguing is no, 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 no. You can be a good worker and a lousy citizen. (laughs) You can be a good person and a lousy worker. And you can be excellent but not engaged. You can be engaged and not ethical. So goodness is complicated. Now, what you could say is societies might have different sense of what it is that's good. 
And I think that one of the things we have to say is it can't be kept quiet. People say, well, what about Hitler? He thought he was doing good things, but the stuff that he was doing, he didn't talk about. Himmler said the Holocaust is the greatest thing that human beings have ever done, which nobody can know about. So when you're hiding what you're doing, that's not good work. We call that compromised work or bad work. All right. Well, I, I have a million other questions, but I think let's get to the sort of intellectual game of this podcast where we, uh, we take a look at what surprise clips have been chosen for us and see what we think about them. The first one is by philosopher Alva Noah, who came in relatively recently, and it is called Can Porn Be Art? Pornography is an instrument with a certain function in mind. People use pornography to get sexual pleasure. Frankly, it's for masturbating too. That's what it's for. On my theory, works of art are not instruments. They don't have functions. They're not tools. Works of art subvert functions. They disrupt functions. They interrupt functions. Think about a simple tool like a doorknob. We use doorknobs effortlessly. We don't stop and think about it. If, if we do have to stop and think about it, there's probably some problem with the door, doorknob's design. So. Uh, what would a strange doorknob be? It would be a doorknob that somehow didn't work or that was in the wrong place and that therefore called all of this stuff which is hidden in the background into the foreground. And that's, that's the kind of thing I mean by saying that a strange tool reveals us to ourselves. There could be art that worked with sex and that worked with explicit sex. My only stipulation is that it wouldn't be good for masturbating because it wouldn't be giving you what you want because art is in the business of questioning what your wants presuppose. Pornography never defies expectations, but art happens precisely when expectations are defied. And that's why I don't think there can be a pornographic art. In a sense, Alvin Noe has defined things in a certain way that you can't argue with him. He says, by definition, if it's pornography, then it can't be art. And if it's art, it can't be pornography. So in that sense, uh, there's nothing to argue with. It's a definitional issue. Right. But let me try to talk about my own reaction to this. Staying within his terms, one person's pornography could be another person's art. I mean, he uses masturbation as a measure, but I think that's kind of, uh, maybe that's his, that's his definition. <laughs> I'm not going to go along with that. But, you know, there are things which uh, many of us would think are artistic, which other people think should be censored. You know, where you draw the line becomes very important. But let me get at something that he's not asking, but I think is a much more interesting question. Okay. And that is what's beautiful. Because when he's talking about art and pornography, in a sense he's talking about what's beautiful. And I think he wants to argue that art is beautiful and pornography just lets you come off or get off, or whatever the jerk off, whatever the, right ver whatever the right verb is. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what beauty is and have written about it. And I think beauty has three characteristics okay. and we could actually bring them to bear on pornography if we think of it. Yeah. Beautiful things, first of all, have to be interesting. They have to capture your attention. Second of all, there's something about the form that has to be memorable. And third of all, you have to want to revisit it again. Then, sort of as a bonus, you may get a little neurotransmitter feeling of pleasure. But things are not beautiful, obviously, if they don't attract your interest, because then if you can just describe them in words and the form doesn't really matter, and if you don't want to see them again, those things would keep things from being beautiful. 
Now, what's interesting is we, of course, disagree with one another about what's beautiful and what's not, and that's fine. There's no reason why we should legislate what's beautiful and what's not. And also, anybody who isn't a complete nerd or nitwit <laughs> will change what they think is beautiful over the course of their lives. And hopefully it'll become deeper and more complex. I use myself as an example. I became interested in classical music, and when I was a, a teenager, all I did was like to listen to Tchaikovsky's Concerti and see how fast people could play it. Now, I'm not that excited about Tchaikovsky Concerti anymore, but I'm certainly not interested in how fast they play it. Um, so let's go back to the example here. I think pornography clearly captures your interest, if it's the right gender, etc. And I think here's where, where he gets into trouble. Does the form matter, or will anything do equally well? In other words, what are you remembering of the form? And then do you want to revisit it? I think the truth is probably you wouldn't want to revisit the same pornography because once you've seen it or come off, there's no reason to see it again or hear it again. The works of art that we want to see again or hear again are the ones where there's an infinite amount of information there. You don't sure. tire of a Shakespeare play or a Beethoven quartet or whatever the modern equivalent is, but I would think that pornography would, uh, you know, seeing it again, the value would be immediately lost. Let me ask, let me ask a couple of questions here because I've been thinking a number of things as you've been talking. One, you know, going back a little bit, you gave a definition of what's beautiful. Do you think art always has to be beautiful? I mean, I feel like I could think of things that I would consider ugly, which fit those three criteria as well in terms of being fascinating, getting your attention. Yeah, I think that now, now we're back in Professor Noy's thing. We're, we're into a definitional thing here. Okay. Um, a way I think about your question in a little bit less sharp form is we certainly consider things to be artistic and beautiful even when they depict things which, for example, could be agony or suffering. Right. But it's very different from seeing agony or suffering in the flesh, so to speak, where the impulse is either to help or to run away, than to see it, as it were, in tranquility, when you just can you know, observe the Christ crucifixion or the funeral march, and there's nothing really you can do to change that kind of thing. So I think those things can certainly be art, whether you want to call them beautiful would be a definitional thing. Because the important thing, which almost everybody agrees with, and I think uh, the philosopher also, is art involves a certain kind of distance. You encounter the thing in tranquility. You don't encounter it when you're very excited or so on. Sure. Again, that's where pornography <laughs> fails because, of course, <laughs> you, know, you don't want to be tranquil all the time or it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> right, yeah. right. You said that beauty has something to do with revisitability, or art does. That's, at very, any rate. that's very important. There may be things which are very interesting and they're memorable, like something that's quite awful, but you don't want to visit it again. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, you know, if you've gone to a concentration camp once, you have to be pretty bizarre to want to go back again, and so it fails on that particular dimension. Now, you, you have but, to feel not only not revulsion, but you have to feel there's more there. That's the key. Right. Think of a jingle. There's no more there. The work that survives over the generations is work where it, it keeps giving. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm loath to imagine <laughs> to what extent pornography could evolve or develop, but I guess it's conceivable that someone could come up with some incredibly revisitable form of pornography. I really, I don't know that the form has been fully explored. Well, if, 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 if it were very, if it were revisitable, then that means there was a lot there and it would move more into the art beauty Thing. Indeed. Yeah, well, so for example, um, the great, what I would consider a great film, Anthony Burgess's, um, Clockwork Orange. The, well, the film of Clockwork Orange, 
I don't ever want to see that again. It had a fairly, I mean, I think I probably saw it too young, but it had a fairly traumatic effect on me. And yet I would consider it revisitable in the sense that it would probably yield up a great more information if I were to revisit it. It's more a matter of just not wanting to. Yeah, basically when the first <laughs> encounter is traumatic, then one has much less desire to revisit. Though if you saw it first when you were 12, you're such a different person now that it might not at all have the same impact on you. That is possible. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I can stomach it again at some <laughs> when point. When your seven-year-old gets to be 14. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. And then I have to watch it with him. I don't know about that. But I guess my last question before we move on from this one is, so do you think that the quality of art can be judged by its revisitability? Well, there are all sorts of experiences which you might want to have again where the form isn't memorable. My own view of art, which comes out of philosophy, is that anything can be art if you decide to examine it in a certain way. So if you see a pebble on the ground, you know, you just walk by it. If it's in a museum, a whole set of different issues come up. That mm. said, one pebble you may want to revisit, the other one you won't. Then you start to get into the realm that I'm interested in. I suppose by that approach, if you were able sufficiently to distance yourself from pornography, you could turn it into art. Well, I mean, actually, I mean, an interesting thought is, you know, let's say you're heterosexual and it's uh, homosexual art, that's probably not going to excite your sexuality, but you might find it beautiful in other grounds. Or, yeah, yeah. fascinating on some yeah. level. Okay, well, I think we may have exhausted this topic. Shall we see, yes, <laughs> Shall we see what's next? I did not at all expect that <laughs> I'd be asked to talk about pornography, nor, something I don't spend much time thinking about. Nor did I. Um, okay, now we have Franz de Waal, who's a primatologist, talking about religion versus morality. Well, religion is an interesting topic because religion is universal. All human societies have a religion one way or another which for the biologist must mean that religion has some advantages, offers some advantages to a society. Otherwise, we wouldn't have that strong tendency to develop it. And so for me, that's actually a far more interesting question of whether God exists or doesn't exist. That sort of questions I cannot answer. But the question of why we have religions is an interesting question. And my view is that morality, our human morality, is older than religion, so instead of saying morality comes from God or religion gave us morality. For me, that's a big no-no. Our current religions are just two or 3,000 years old, which is very young, and our species is much older. And I cannot imagine that, for example, 100,000 years or 200,000 years, our ancestors did not have some type of morality. Of course, they had rules about how you should behave, so they had a moral system. And then at some point, we developed these present-day religions which I think were sort of tacked onto the morality that we had. And maybe they served to codify them, or to enforce them, or to steer morality in a particular direction that we prefer. And so, so religion comes in for me secondarily. I'm struggling with whether we need religion. I, I tend to agree that you know, religion is a way of codifying morality, but I also think that it's a way of offering explanations for things that people don't have explanations for. And the reason that we have gods or a god or some kind of higher being, it's lots of stuff that happens we don't understand, we don't like, or we want to justify what we're doing. And so the god talk is a way of basically providing epistemology before you have science and other disciplines for doing it. And I agree with Dewal that we have an interesting experiment going on in, in Northern Europe and you know, certain intellectual circles elsewhere where we have a quite 
good explanatory system which doesn't require God. So in a sense, he or she or it is superfluous. Also, there's lots of evidence that believing in God, having religion, has no particular correlation nowadays with whether people do the right thing. If anything, there's all sorts of evidence that atheists and societies which have nominal religions but where people don't go to church and don't pray are at least as moral and typically more moral. And uh, at the risk of alienating your southern <laughs> listeners, such as may exist, uh, you know, the American South is by far the most religious, and on every measure of uh, turpitude, it does very, it very <laughs> good scores. Uh, only somebody who's a New England professor could uh, get away and say that, and maybe somebody with a concealed weapon will kill me, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a chance I have to take. The question of why did religion emerge, I don't think religion could have emerged without language, and a lot of the morality that Professor DeWall is talking about you know, existed before language. I mean, language is probably 40,000 years old, and we have burials that occurred before that, 100,000 years ago, and, and we had other kinds of symbolic behavior, and we certainly can see in the primates, where DeWall is one of the world's experts, you know, that they do care for one another and they share and things like that. So I think he's right that morality preceded religion. Religion is probably requires both a fairly large group you know, a society or a civilization, not just a bunch of people hunting, a certain degree of stability, and, you know, the religions we know about have literacies connected to it. I don't know enough about, you know, Amerindian religions to know, you know, what kind of codification takes place, but they must be things which people remember and repeat and so on, whether or not it's written, but it requires a complex language system. I have my own take on this, very much like I have my own take on <laughs> pornography and art, which you asked me about before, and that is that we need to distinguish two aspects of good. One I call neighborly morality, the other I call the ethics of roles. Neighborly morality is what the Bible is about, and that's how do you deal with people who are nearby. And people who are nearby, you shouldn't steal from them, you shouldn't kill them, you shouldn't lie to them, you should respect your parents, you shouldn't commit adultery. Those have existed for thousands of years, whether or not codified, and you know, religion may help this because there are sanctions within religions if you do these kinds of things. What I'm interested in, religion has very little help in. I call this the ethics of roles. And all of the work that I've done in good work, good citizenship, and so on, is very different from the work about good persons. It has to do with what it means to live in a complex society, where you have professionals who are journalists, or doctors, or teachers, or lawyers, or architects, or engineers. And all sorts of problems arise at the workplace where the Bible is no help. I mean, let's say you're a journalist, you're trying to cover things in a disinterested way, but you see somebody's about to commit a crime. Is it your job to write it down sure. and report it, or is it your job to intervene? And you can't look that up in the Bible, and, and every professional runs into problems like that every day. Similarly, everybody has lived in communities for thousands of years, but being a citizen, somebody who actually votes on who should be in office and what laws should be revoked or implemented. Those are things where the Bible doesn't give you much help and religion doesn't give you much help. And those are things where we have to construct systems like the Constitution of the United States, which would be equally well if the word God wasn't ma mentioned, or the code of the journalist or the code of the lawyer or the code of the professor, where again, you, know, you can invoke God, but it doesn't help you much and the religions don't give you answers. So I make a big distinction between 
neighborly morality, which I think is what religion evolved to deal with, and how do you deal with people around you, and ethics of roles, where how do you deal with somebody who's halfway around the world who you never see, but you're exchanging information, whether you're doing it as a scientist or a journalist. And this is where I think scholarship has new stuff to give us, because we can't look it up. I, I think that that's a good note on which to move on to the next. This one is um, Michael Strahan, host of Good Morning America, NFL Hall of Famer, talking about self-doubt. We all doubt ourselves. I doubt myself every day. I still do. It's, it's, it's a work in progress, and I think that's the thing about it. It's not as if you say, I'm happy and I got it. I got the keys to happiness. But I think there are certain things that you can do, which I try to point out what I do in, in the book, that are triggers. So when you realize that maybe I am doubting myself, that you can change your thought, train of thought to get back on the positive side. I was playing uh, a game against the 49ers. It was a Monday night game. And I was on my way going to another Pro Bowl, which means I was one of the best in the NFL, but I felt horrible. I felt like I was one of the worst players. And I went to somebody in Arizona who, you know, just reinforced that you have to speak kindly to yourself. You have to talk nicely to yourself and say to yourself what you would say to somebody else to encourage them. And that's what I started to do. The next week had a big game against the Cardinals and it was in my opinion, in 15 years in the NFL, the best and greatest football game I've ever played. And I'm a true believer that it's all, it's all what you think of yourself. It's all about the work that you put into it. You can do it. I have no doubt in anybody. Everything is possible. I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I'm going to put on the clinical psychologist hat. And that is, I think it depends entirely on the person. If you have somebody who's plagued by self-doubt, and particularly if it's crippling, Obviously, you need to bolster them. You need to give them reasons to feel better about themselves, genuine reasons, not fake reasons. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are all sorts of people who walk around with outsized views of themselves, which are completely not in touch with reality and which are actually quite damaging, you know, the narcissism, egotism. I don't think we need to tell Donald Trump that, he's, that, that he should feel better about himself. So, you know, I'm not too fond of self-help books, and I think people often carry around totally conflicting notions in their mind about whether you should be feeling happy or facing reality or whether you should see things that there are things to worry about and be prudent. And so uh, to me, I think we have to equip people to be all different ways and to be wary of only giving yourself one message of self-repair. This is going to probably appeal to people you know, who are plagued by self-doubt who think they're phony or assume they're fake. But simply to say you're not a phony or not fake doesn't help. There have to be genuine reasons to feel good about yourself. Research on the self-esteem movement carried out years ago in California showed that there were many, many more students who thought they were good in things than those students really were, and they were just deluding themselves, whereas kids who were actually performing much better in countries like Japan or, or Europe didn't give themselves credit for being doing a good job at all. So I'm, I'm not in favor of one self-help message for all, but maybe people should choose the one that they really need to hear. The other thing which is interesting, this is research again done years ago, is there's some people who just buy every self-help book, uh, and I feel sorry for them. Yeah, I would think that could be very confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Howard Gardner, it has been great talking with you today. Thank you so much for being on Think Again. Good. Very good to talk with you, Jason. That's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Thank you, everyone, for listening and subscribing to the show and giving us such nice comments on iTunes and over Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, we're Big Think Again. 
follow us on there if you want to hear announcements and special things that are going on, and especially if you want to let us know who you'd like to see on the show or hear on the show. Next week, we're going to have Michael Shermer, who is the president of the Skeptic Society and head of Skeptic Magazine. It's a really lively and interesting conversation, and I hope you'll join us. See you then.